Thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast from Redeeming Hope. We exist as a family of faith that follows Jesus and helps others find him by living all of life as missionaries of hope. If you want more information about our church or would like to support our ministry, go to our website at redeeminghope.org. Please enjoy the sermon podcast. So as we begin today, continuing in our exploration of Titus, two worlds collide, we're looking today at a household transformed. And so as I begin our time today, I want to ask you a question. Do you have someone in your family that's extremely reliable and mature that you depend on? So this would be the person that you ask to take you to the airport right? Um, that's such a special thing to get asked to take the airport. I know a lot of my friends like don't like to get asked to take people to the airport, but I actually think it's a really high honor because you've got someone that's planning a trip, right? So they're going somewhere that's, that's, not from their, that's away from their home. They've got money, they've got time invested, they've got plans, but they're trusting you with those plans to get them to the airport, right? So if you sleep in, they might miss their flight. And so to be asked to get taken to the airport is a really special honor. But uh, again, thinking going back to thinking about that mature person, that reliable person in your family, that person that you ask to help you move, that person that, that you have invited to be there for you that, that shows up, that person is helpful, that person is appreciated and consistent. And that might be you in your family. I actually, if you're a member of Redeeming Hope, I want that to be you. That means that you're godly, you're faithful, you're mature, you're consistent. Um, but th- those other people that are in your family that you lean on, they actually make a family better, don't they? Like they just make a family better, especially if you consider that, that of course, every family is dysfunctional in their own way. But that reliable person will transform the people around them that he'll actually or she will actually help make that, that family better. They make others around them feel better because they're reliable, they're mature, they're consistent. And when we begin to think about church as a family, that we grow together and we grow healthy when we are like that reliable, mature person. When we're reliable and we're mature, we're consistent and we're self-controlled, we actually make each other better as a family. Now, what we come to the text that we're coming to today, Paul is writing to his protege, Titus. He is on the verge of getting martyred. This is his second to last letter that he's ever written. And he's writing to Titus to set this, this kind of island of chaos and debauchery. That's what we're calling Crete. The island of chaos and debauchery of, of, of pirates and of mercenaries and of thieves. He's asking for, for Titus to set the church right in the midst of this. So we, we, he's writing in the midst of all these little house churches on Crete whose, whose people in those house churches, their homes and their personal lives are an absolute wreck. The message of Jesus is being discredited in the island because of the activity of the members of the people that are claiming to be Christians. So people are accusing one another. They're infighting against one another. That there's actually not raising stable, healthy families. There's very few family units on the whole island of Crete because there's so much sexual deviancy and debauchery. And so what what Paul's writing is that there can be an opportunity to raise stable and healthy families. What he's saying is that the gospel can prove itself in the public square. That actually, when you live out the gospel 
in the midst of a, a culture of debauchery and chaos, that it actually is inviting, that it is winsome, that it's in the public form. When you live your life in public around other people, but you can live in the midst of a culture, but live by a completely different value system. And what Paul is acknowledging is that the people in Crete, their families are vital in living out the gospel in the midst of the culture. And so what he's saying is your family is vital. Your family is important. And so he's asking, writing Titus to instruct all the different elements of a household, all the different elements of a family to live differently in the midst of a culture of chaos and debauchery. And he's going to show them how that is actually winsome. That's going to draw people to faith. And that's actually going to make their churches stronger. So let's look, I'm just going to read to you verses 1 through 10 of Titus chapter 2, which is going to be kind of our main text for today. This is him writing to Titus. He says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine, they are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself, now he turns to Titus as a representative of those younger men, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior." This is all going back to, it's, it's very interesting. If you look at that text, at the beginning it says, as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And at the very end of the text it says, so that in everything they may, meaning the people in the church, may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior, like put on good doctrine like a piece of clothing. See, our main point for uh, today's message is this. A household that humbly receives Jesus' grace is transformed to live out the good news of Jesus to the world. So we're going to be talking about four points today. The expectations of the seasoned. Those are the people that I'm, the older people. The expectations of the young. The expectations of leaders. And finally, the impossible expectation fulfilled. So all of these instructions, like I mentioned, are in accordance with sound doctrine, both teaching it and putting it into practice. And that's really the part where Paul's getting at in this section of Titus. This is faith put into practice in the life of the family, of the families in Crete, specifically when the family units were dissolving and breaking down all around them. This is the integration of faith into real life and what it results in is transformation. So let's begin by looking at the expectations of the seasoned. Titus 2, 2-3. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. So um, I am using the terminology of seasoned for a reason. Old 
versus seasoned as, in my mind, two very different things. Old does not necessarily mean mature. So the older men and women in Crete, they were swindlers. They were cheats. They were thieves and gossips and drunks. And it's pretty clear that just because you have more numbers on your life doesn't mean that you are more mature, doesn't mean that you are more godly, doesn't mean that you're more inclined to do those things. So what we see here is not Paul acknowledging that the older men are doing those things. What we see is he's actually writing to correct something, not to celebrate something. So he's writing to correct what the older men and women are doing. And so we have to understand something about this section. It's very important, this whole section with older men and women, with younger women and younger men, and with Titus. What we see here is that Paul is writing in a specific response to specific things that are going on. It's very easy to take some of this stuff out of context and say that there's some, we have to draw the principles without using these specifics and saying they apply in every single example. So um, what he's doing is he's giving them a model of people who are seasoned with the gospel, who are older and also seasoned in the gospel. They're experienced and transformed by grace. And he's saying, this is an image, this is a picture on what more seasoned men and women should be doing. So this is what they should be doing within the household. So starting with seasoned men, the first thing he says that they need to be is sober-minded. Now, this can mean calm and even-keeled, or it could relate to alcohol. And what we understand from the context of Crete, this is related to alcohol. What it means is to be sober-minded. This is to be cautious with the use of of alcohol, to have a sober mind about them, to not be drunk. And because when you're drunk, then what happens? You're not dignified, you're not self-controlled, and you're not sound in your mind, and you're not healthy, right? So you're, when you're drunk, a lot of these things come out. And so what he's saying is the first thing is to be free with the use of alcohol in the sense of don't be controlled or enslaved to alcohol. Next, he's saying that the more seasoned men need to be dignified. This is a serious demeanor that inspires respect. He's saying that carry yourself well. Don't carry yourself like a child. Don't carry yourself like you don't have responsibilities. Carry yourself with weightiness, with a seriousness about you, because the message of the gospel is being carried on through you. He says self-controlled, which by the way, is the theme for verses one through 10. And it's one of the major themes in this book to be self-controlled. <laughs> Pretty much the older men and women, the younger men, the younger women, and Titus and elders and all of these people that are supposed to be aspiring towards a life of godliness. The main center core of that is to be self-controlled, to have measured restraint in all things. Then he says he wants the more seasoned men to be sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. That word sound means to be healthy and free from disease, to not be diseased in your faith. This means to believe well. This means to have a true, genuine faith in Jesus that hears, believes, and obeys Jesus. It says to be sound in love to let love be free from obligation. There's such a, a tit-for-tat mentality going on in Crete because everyone was trying to swindle one another. They're trying to be thieves. They're trying to get theirs, right? And so what he's saying is be sound, be healthy in love. 
Let your heart love people freely. And then he says, be sound or be healthy in steadfastness. This means have an endurance about you. Have a perseverance about you. Don't quit. Stay faithful. Stick with this life. That's what he's saying. Stick with this transformation. Stick with the gospel. Stick with living this out in the public sphere. Be sound and steadfastness. Then he turns to the women and he says to be reverent. This is an exterior demeanor that inspires respect. It's kind of the same word as dignified, but yet for the women. And then he tells them two things. Don't be gossips and don't be controlled by alcohol. Now, we actually see this in the Bible that they go together often. This idea of an encouragement to not engage with alcohol or an over-engagement with alcohol and not to gossip or have sound speech right? And this is very helpful because we see when we're drunk, we have a tendency to say hurtful, mean, or rude things that damage others. We have a tendency to flap our mouths a lot, especially when the inhibitions are lowered a little bit. So that's why gossiping and drinking often go together. And what we found is that in the first century, um, women were oppressed for, I mean, since the dawn of time, women have been oppressed. But there was this kind of stint in Rome in the first century where women were given the celebration of a new freedom. And this was actually kind of accelerated by Crete because Cretan women had a tendency to enjoy more freedom than most other women within that culture. Because it was such an island of debauchery and thieves, you had to have a really tough skin to even live on Crete. And so these were some pretty hardened women that kind of didn't need to depend on no man, if you get what I'm saying. Like they didn't, they actually weren't turning towards men to, to rely on them. They were actually saying, hey, I can make my own way. And Crete, because it was so like countercultural in so many ways. It was so chaotic. It was so kind of has such debauchery that actually the societal structure was so broken down that women actually were able to forge a pathway to have businesses and to have autonomy from men. And so then the Roman culture comes in, which actually celebrated this new feminism where, where, where females were, were very wealthy, females were celebrated, and female sexuality was celebrated, that it actually just kind of coupled with the culture of Crete, the women were actually running quite wild within the church. And especially what the older women were doing was that they were staying at home, they were a little bit more especially that more elder women had some savings, maybe they were retired, they were gossiping and drinking all day. And so they were drinking and talking about other people in the church and talking about other things that are going on, and it was quite chaotic. And so Paul is warning the older women to be reasonable and self-controlled, to be reverent, to not be consumed by alcohol or gossip. And then finally, he gives one more positive. He says, teach the younger women. So what he's saying is, is that I want you to exemplify something so well that you then teach other women how to do these things. So th there's some principles we can draw out, right? So there's a very specific thing he's hitting in the culture here, especially with women within these 10 verses because of the culture of Crete with women, up to that point who had enjoyed more autonomy and then coupled with this kind of new feminism coming out of Rome that really celebrated a woman's sexual freedom and even celebrated sexual deviancy in women as kind of something to be glorified and celebrated, that they didn't have to have a family, they didn't have to have a husband, they didn't have to form bonds with other people, that they can be independent and autonomous 
to the degree that it would hurt them and other people around them. But there is some principles we can draw out for the more seasoned people that are listening to this, that have a few extra years on, your, on their life. My friends, I want to tell you, you have a responsibility and a joy. So you have a responsibility and a joy with it in the local church. Sometimes you got to cough. And I turn off the mic and I always say, I hope the mic turns back on. You have a responsibility and you have a joy. So for the more seasoned people in our context, you have a, you have a responsibility to be self-controlled. When you are older and you have more financial freedom, you have more opportunity for leisure and more opportunities to indulge your flesh, the natural inclination of your life. You have more opportunities to do that because you have more flexibility with your time. And so I just want to encourage you to be self-controlled. This is so important for you because you have a vision for your life. You have a legacy that you are called to leave and you don't get to coast the last 20 years of your life. Those can be some of the most important years of your entire life are the last, are the last section of it. So you have more leisure and probably more money, but that means that you need to have self-control to not use it to indulge your own fleshly desires. So next, you have a responsibility as a more seasoned person to be considerate of the younger generation. So the Bible's saying, teach, train, model. My friends, we need you. Clarksville needs you, needs godly men, more seasoned men, godly seasoned women who are going to teach and train the younger generation to, to show us what it looks like to follow Jesus for 20, 30 years and to model that for us, to give us something to aspire to. You have a responsibility to be selfless and restrained for the betterment of your household. So if your grandma and your granddad, like, or if you're a, a little bit older of parents, you have a responsibility to be selfless and restrained and, and not simply just kind of speak whatever you want whenever you want it. Because the older you get, really the less consequences that you have. What are you going to do? Fire me? Right? Like that could be, like that's not really a consequence anymore for a 60-year-old who's retired. <laughs> But, but there is a responsibility that you have to be selfless and think about the betterment of your household, the betterment of your children, the betterment of your grandchildren, the betterment of generations. You have a responsibility, but you also have a joy. You see, investing in the next generation, what it does is it leaves a legacy. It's more than money, more than physical children, is the spiritual legacy that you leave, it will ripple through generations. So if you invest in your children spiritually, then they follow Jesus, then they're going to help their children follow Jesus, and their children's children will be helped to follow Jesus. You can change generational, generationally, you can change things long after people forget your name. They will, they will feel the effects of your involvement in their family if you are discipling others if you're leaving a legacy. Your joy is also living well in the last stage of your life. It means that you will not lose heart at the end of your life. You see, the body decays, but your spirit can be renewed daily. Look with me at 2 Corinthians 4.16. He says, Paul saying, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. You know, my wife, has been a transplant nurse for almost a decade. And she recently just got her nurse practitioner degree. Rachel's working as a nurse practitioner. And she has held the hands of many people who are dying. 
And I'll tell you this, after hearing her stories, and you can talk with her about this too, how they live is how they die. How they live is how they die. So if they live in grace and joy, if the last 20 years of their life they're investing in their children and investing in their family and investing spiritually into the Lord and investing into the next generation, at the end of their deathbed, Rachel has talked to me about this unbelievable supernatural peace that overcomes people as they're laying on their deathbed. But even recently, uh, there's patients that she have that are incredibly anxious at the end of their life. They're incredibly nervous. They're scared. And everyone around them feels that tension, feels that stress. And my friends, I want you to reverse engineer your deathbed. And if you're more seasoned, it's closer. It's closer to you when you're 60 than it is when you're 20, more than likely. Not always, but more than likely. And so I want you to think, how do you want to leave this life? What do you want people to, what do you want the last memories of people of you to be? I want them, for me, to be surrounded by my family, celebrating life, celebrating Jesus. I want to be speaking words of blessing into my children and my grandchildren. I want to be commissioning my sons to be godly men. I want to be commissioning my daughters to be godly women. I want to be commissioning my grandchildren to carry on this legacy to the 10th generation of people following Jesus and faithful to him. I want to look my children and my wife in the eye and say, I love you. And you've, you've been a wonderful wife. You've been a wonderful child. And I want you to carry on the legacy of our family and the young name to the 10th generation of people following Jesus. And I want you to do the same thing at your deathbed. Can you imagine what would happen 10 generations down the line? So I want you to think, what do you, how you live is how you die. How do you want to die and then begin to live how you want to die? There is a joy there. And my friends, if you're in your middle age, so if you're between, what, 35 and 50, um, middle-aged people should aspire to be seasoned people. I know that some people are concerned when they get older. They want to hide it right? They want to seek to be youthful looking. They want to seek to be youthful, right? And sometimes even when you reach that more middle-aged part of your life, you might want to revert back. They call it the, the what is it, the mid, mid-age crisis, right? Midlife crisis. Don't do that because this is what the Bible says. Gray hairs are a joy. Look with me at Proverbs sixteen thirty-one. It says, gray hair is a crown of glory. It is gained in a righteous life. Like if you are living a righteous life, if you're following Jesus consistently and you begin to get older, it's to celebrate. Like I can't wait to be in my 40s. Like I want to be in my 40s. I know there's going to be physical decay that happens over time, but the wealth of experience, the wealth of knowledge, the wealth of opportunity grows. Your opportunity grows as you mature. Your ability to influence can grow as you mature well. Don't hide your age. Accept it. Celebrate it by living life right now to set yourself up to be seasoned with grace and the gospel at the end of your life. Live now how you want to live at the end. Live now how you want to die. And guys, I can't wait to get older. And I want you to feel the same way. I want you to be looking at this end of your life. The last 20 years could be the most important 20 years of your life. Don't waste it value it. See it as precious. You are precious. And we need you in our churches. 
We need you investing in the younger generation, and we need you here. Next, that's the expectations of the seasoned, the expectations of the young. We see Titus 2, 4 through 6. Train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. So this word train was really interesting because I was looking at it. It's a little bit different than just train. A couple different translations, so I kind of dug into it a little bit. It literally means to slap in the face or to return to your senses. It's to go right upside the head. That's what it's saying. He's telling the older women to, to the younger women, right? Now, let me tell you, it's very important. If we just read this on a surface level, it seems like, wow, Paul could be a, you could interpret this as Paul is a misogynist. Paul is anti-women. He's really harsh on women. It's very easy to interpret that separated from context that this could be something really focused on anti-women. But this is actually in response to some extreme actions from the women on Crete. So this is an extreme this is a very intentional response to extreme actions from the women on Crete. So remember, Crete was an island dominated by pirates, thieves and mercenaries. The women were hard, like I mentioned before. They just had a grit about them and they enjoyed much freedom. But Rome brought more freedom for women to work, own property, own slaves, own businesses, and let them have their own freedom and sexual autonomy. And with that, coupled with the chaos and debauchery of Crete, came a ton of excess from the women to the extent that they would abandon their children in the streets, to the extent that they would abandon their marriages, to the extent that they would celebrate having sex with multiple partners, um, celebrate playing people off of each other. And then the women were just celebrated as look at their freedom, look at their autonomy. So Paul is coming in with a hard word for young women because they were living a very hard anti-gospel way. And so this is what it, I, this is almost like a car that is going downhill that has lost its regular brakes and you're pulling the emergency brake. So that screeching, that smell, if you've ever had to pull an emergency brake or stop really hard, the smell of burning rubber, the spinning that's happening, this is a car that's careening out of control. That's what the family life was like in Crete. And so the reason why Paul is responding with such focus on the women was because the women were contributing to the debauchery of Crete. He's not blaming them for everything. And in other areas, he counterbalances this a lot with the responsibility of men. But in this specific context, he's very focused on the women because of all the reasons why I just shared. So the images of younger people that are transformed by Jesus, it has to be understood in the context of what was going on. So the younger women, he says the first thing is, love your husbands and children. Why? Because this is in response to family units completely disintegrating and breaking down and children were being orphaned by their parents in the streets because they were like, hey, I don't want anything to do with you. I want to keep living my life. So in response to that, Paul says, young women, love your husbands and children. The second thing he says is to be self-controlled. This is rampant sexual immorality among wives breaking down the family unit, breaking down family ties, breaking down bonds, right? And so what he's saying to the, to the younger women is, is actually he's telling the older women to teach the younger women to be self-controlled. Don't celebrate this. 
Don't celebrate debauchery. Don't celebrate the fact that you have multiple partners. Don't celebrate that you abandoned your children in the streets. Love your husbands. Love your children. Be self-controlled. Don't, don't flow with the culture that says you can just do whatever you want with no consequences. In addition to that, he says to be pure. And again, in response to this new freedom of Roman femininity, in addition to the excess of Christian culture, that's what was happening, was people were just saying, oh, this woman has all these partners. This woman doesn't have a family. She's completely shunned that. She shunned her husband. Look at how great she is. They would literally celebrate that. So what he's saying is in response to all that, women be pure. Then he says, working at home. And again, in the context of Crete, this is in the context and in response to the blatant disregard for the value of the family. And so it was essentially being celebrated, I can live autonomously from my husband. And what Paul is saying is that you were meant to work together. And so he says, don't neglect this. And so what he's giving them is is a word for women to work at home instead of trying to live so independently because it was so celebrated. Next, he invites the women to be kind. There was this brazen harshness. Like I said, the women in Crete were hard people for like a thousand years, pirates and mercenaries. It was hard to be a woman on Crete. You had to have a thick skin about you. And so what he said was, in response to that, you you are called to be kind. And then he finally ends with being submissive to their own husbands. So again, this is in response to the brazen disregard disregard of the value of mutual submission and submitting to anyone. Essentially in the culture, it was like, we don't submit to anyone. We're pirates, we're thieves, we're mercenaries. We go where the money is, we go where the sex is. That's what it was. And so what Paul is saying is, no, be submissive to your own husbands. Now, Paul is limiting this to just a woman's husband. He's not saying that women have to submit to every man. He's not saying that women have to submit to men in every context. What he's saying, within a marriage family unit, women submit to your husbands. And he's also limited in not saying everything because he actually talks later about slaves and bond servants to submit to your masters in everything. He uses the same, same word choices, but he adds in everything. And he, he's not asking the women to submit to their husbands in everything. He's saying, in general, submit to your husband's leadership within the home. So this is trying to bring a careening car into stability again. So again, just think of your car, you're careening out of control, you're picking up speed, and this is throwing the emergency brake and trying to set things right again. So like I said, elsewhere, Paul gives great care and nuance to the role of men, but in this context, he does not for these reasons. So when we look at scripture as a whole, I just think I need to add a caveat here. When we look at scripture as a whole, Women must be cared for. They must be respected as image bearers of God, not dominated over, not dealt with harshly. Rather, women are to be protected. They are to be valued by men. They are to be honored. They are to be honored so much that the men sacrifice themselves as Jesus sacrificed himself so that their wives can thrive. But here with this issue in particular, Paul is throwing the emergency break. And here's really the reason why. And if you go look, it says, so that the word of God may not be reviled. That's kind of why he's giving this like very last thing. He says, women do all these things so that the word of God may not be reviled. Here's the deal. The actions of these women on the island of Crete were causing the word of God to be reviled. 
they were causing the reputation of Jesus to be harmed. See, the concern was is that people were beginning to think that sexually promiscuous women who rejected their husbands, who rejected children, who had no self-control, who wanted to carve out their own path and destroy the family unit in the process, they were beginning to think that that's what it meant to be a Christian woman. Because remember, there's not a lot of Christians around here. Christianity is like maybe a couple decades old at this point. And so they're still trying to figure out what this means. They don't have 2,000 years of trajectory. We would say that today and say that doesn't exemplify what a Christian woman should be. But back then they didn't know. And so this would, what Paul was concerned about was the way these women were living would be traced back to the message of Christianity. And then people would say, oh, wow, like this doesn't sound like something I want to do. So that's why it talks about the younger women to such a degree. Now, the younger men, he says for them to be self-controlled because he just gave them one instruction. First off, because that solves the majority of problems with young men, if you're self-controlled. But secondly, he goes on to talk to Titus about how Titus, the pastor, should be modeling what the young men should be doing as an example. So the young men should be aspiring to be an elder. The young men should be aspiring to be like Titus. And so Paul would have just simply repeated himself here if he said, young men do this, and oh, Titus, you do this. So he just pretty much said, young men be self-controlled, and the rest of the points for young men are under what he's instructing Titus to do. And we finally see within the context of living in a household with younger men and women, he also talks about bond servants. This is what he says in Titus 2, 9 to 10. He says, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So this word bond servant, there's no way around it. It literally means slave. That's what it means. So there's different types of slavery in the first century. Some are brutal, like we would understand slavery here in an American context. Some are more like indentured servitude, where people would sell themselves into slavery to pay off debts. Some of it would be voluntary, to actually come underneath a a household where you would be able to live there and have food in a context where there was laws in Rome to protect slaves. That was actually probably a safe thing. But here's the deal. Owning people is wrong in every context. All of it's wrong. So we pull the principles out and we can really see this to be an employee or boss relationship. So we pull the principles out on the idea of bond servants and masters and say that this can typify an employee or boss relationship outside of a context of slavery. So what he says is to be submissive in everything. Well-pleasing, not argumentative. This was in contrast to a lazy employee that does nothing. So what he says is, if you're a follower of Jesus, don't be a lazy employee that does nothing and tries to get out of work. Don't be argumentative. Don't argue about trying to get out of stuff. Uh, Because again, that was going on in Crete. A lot of the people that were working as carpenters and, and bankers and all those things, they were just lazy people. And so he says, don't be lazy doing nothing. What you need to be is well-pleasing, not trying to argue your way out of work. Next, he says, be submissive in everything, not pilfering, but showing good faith. This is versing, versus a stealing employee. Remember, island of thieves, island of mercenaries, people are always looking to cheat the boss. So it says, is, don't be lazy, don't cheat, but submit to whatever your boss tells you to do. And what he says is, you can embody the gospel in how you respond. So you don't devalue one another.
who you are in the social cast, whether you're older men, older women, younger men, younger women, whether you were slaves or whether in the modern translation of that you're an employee or you're a boss, everyone can respond well. Everyone can embody the gospel. My friends, if you are joining us and you are a younger person, if you are an employee, if you have a job, you model the gospel to the people around you. So you model the gospel by your self-control. So you being reserved, you having your emotions under control will model the gospel to the people around you. It will be winsome. You actually model the gospel by how you model a healthy family unit. Whether you're single, you're married, you're divorced, or you're widowed, you model the truth of your gospel by how you live at home and at work. So if you lived as a transformed person that's transformed by Jesus, you will help other people be transformed as well. My friends, this actually matters. You matter. If you're a younger person in our church, if you're in those working ages of 18 to 50, right? Uh, moving up to the peak of your career, um, get wor- working through the education, the first couple of jobs, doing those things, 18 to 50, which I would say maybe you're not a young person. If you're 50 and I'm calling you a young person, that's probably a good thing. Um, but wh- wherever you are on the age class, if you're not a more seasoned person, you matter to God. You are God in the flesh to the people around you. You model the gospel, and you can model the gospel in your work. This is the expectations of those who are younger. Finally, he talks about the expectation of leaders. See, Titus was an elder, and he was appointing elders, but he was not an older person. He was actually a younger man. More than likely, he was in his 30s. And so Paul combines the instruction for young men with Titus's instructions. This is what he says in Titus 2, 7 to 8. He says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. So the first thing he says to Titus is to be a model of good works. And this is actually in direct opposition to Titus 1.16, where he's talking about these people that were in leadership in the church. It says, they profess to know God, but deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So that was the leadership in Crete when Titus comes in. They were denying God by their very actions. And so what he is telling Titus to do is to model good works, model good actions, be the exact opposite of the bad leadership in Crete. Do you see how a lot of these instructions we can draw principles out of, but they're very specific to the context in which they're in. So he tells him to teach with integrity and dignity and sound speech. So first he says, teach with integrity. This is being above corruption. Now remember, people were teaching what others wanted to hear for money. This is what the previous leadership of the church in Crete was doing. So what he's saying is teach well with honesty and integrity. Teach well without trying to get money on the back end of it. Don't teach what other people want to hear and then have them pay you for it. That's essentially what he's saying. It sounds pretty obvious, but he needs to say that and he needs to be explicit about that because this is what was going on in Crete. So literally integrity, it means that you have honesty and character on the inside that makes its way to the outside. That's what I'm saying integrity is, that you have honesty and character on the inside 
that makes its way out to the outside. That's what integrity is. Next, he tells Titus to teach with dignity and sound speech. This is above dismissal. This means that you can't be dismissed when you carry yourself with dignity and respect and sound speech, people can't ignore you. So what he's saying is don't ramble. Be self-controlled. Be logical. Have helpful teachings that are worthy of respect and honor. Carry yourself like an elder. And all of this is protecting the reputation of the gospel. Jesus doesn't need defending. But the reputation of the gospel through the church can be more clear or less clear depending on how the people within the church act. So what he's telling Titus to do as a leader is to protect the reputation of the gospel. Let your opponents be put to shame. Let anyone tries to find something against you, let them not find it. And then what he's saying is have nothing to hold against the gospel except the message of the gospel itself. And so really what this does is his instructions to Titus really couple, and the young men really uh, couple well with the requirements of an elder from the previous verses in our sermon from last week. So the young men and pastors are called to live lives that are above corruption, that are above dismissal, and above bringing reproach or shame to the gospel. Now, if I were to end the sermon here, that sounds great, right? So it gives us this absolutely impossible standard that none of us can meet. This is a lot of requirements to everyone that's listening, regardless of age or gender. When we look in the mirror, what we find is we find ourselves horribly lacking, don't we? The older men at times can be selfish and self-centered, can't we? Can't you? Older women can struggle not to gossip, not to be enslaved to just kind of doing what they want to do and celebrating it. Younger women can struggle to balance these instructions with the worldly expectations of women, right? To celebrate all of the freedom without any of the responsibility. And so young men struggle to be dignified. Young men struggle to be self-controlled and to have integrity. The, the, inside often, the outside often matches the inside and it doesn't look good. And really, pastors do struggle at times to model good works, to handle their position of authority with self-control and deference and care and godliness. So here's the deal. This is an impossible standard that none of us can meet. So why in the world is it in the Bible? Why did God put this here? How do we handle this? My friends, here's the good news. Here's the gospel. We have someone who is self-controlled for us. We have someone who is constrained by love for us. We have someone who is free from addiction. We have someone who is dignified, even during the most undignified of deaths. We have Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus is the best seasoned adult who is eternal, right? He's older than time itself. And he's selfless. And he gives of himself always without needing anything in return. He's perfectly sober-minded. He's perfectly self-controlled in all things. We, we see Jesus as the best younger adult who was born and lived a normal life for his first 30 years. He loves his family. He loves the church. He is pure. He's unstained. Jesus was constrained by his love for us. He was in perfect submission to his father, even to the point of death. We see Jesus is the best leader. We talked last week about elders and shepherds. Jesus is the best leader who is the shepherd of his flock. And he shepherds his flock in perfect integrity, perfect dignity. He modeled the best work 
Remember he tells Titus to model good works? Jesus modeled the best work in all of human history by dying on the cross to bring his wayward sheep back home again. Are you on the struggle bus today? Are you struggling with this stuff? Well, guess what? Me too. Every day, we're all on the struggle bus, and that's a good thing. Do you want to know why? Because the very next words in Titus are these. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. My friends, you are not made pure and holy and godly and transformed by your obedience. Not at all. You are made pure and holy and godly and transformed based on your submission to Jesus and his obedience and your reception of his obedience for you. So if you are looking over your life and you are not yet identifying as a follower of Jesus, my friends, you can have a life and a household that is renewed and transformed by Jesus's grace without having to do anything to earn it. All you have to do is hear this message Believe that it's true for you, that you need the obedience of Jesus on your behalf because you can't do it yourself. And then you have to obey by making Jesus Lord over your life, by submitting to him, by coming under his authority. And when you submit your life to him, that's what makes you a Christian. Now, if you're joining us and you are a follower of Jesus, you are a Christian, my friends, you can live out a legacy that will last for generations It only depends on how much you submit and surrender to Jesus and how much you receive his grace as a humbled sinner. Because we looked at over 17 weeks in the work of the Holy Spirit, you can quench the Holy Spirit. You can be less holy. Limit your expression of God's holiness. You actually can't be less holy because you're made ultimately holy by the work of Christ on the cross. But you can express that holiness that God's given you in diminished ways by quenching the Holy Spirit inside of you. You can leave a worse legacy through selfishness. Or you can walk by the Spirit. You can, be, you can express the holiness that God has placed in you in greater and clearer ways. And you can leave a better legacy. My friends, Jesus is not just our good model and not just our good example. He is the one who has already accomplished all the work for us. You can come to him in faith Come to him in humility today as a weak sinner, as a weak older man, as a weak older woman, as a weak younger woman, as a weak younger man, as a weak pastor and a weak Christian. And he is gentle, he is patient, he is kind, he is self-controlled, and he will give you a grace that transforms your life, your legacy, and your future. Thanks so much for tuning in to this online gathering of Redeeming Hope, and I hope you have a great week. Thank you for listening. We gather every Sunday at the Clarksville area YMCA. For more information, please go to our website at redeeminghope.org.